Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The coronavirus pandemic is impacting institutions around the world, including the United Nations. In fact, about an hour after I recorded this episode, the Philippines' mission to the United Nations said that one of its diplomats, who had been in meetings at UN headquarters in New York, tested positive for COVID-19. In this episode, I speak with Margaret Bashir, the UN correspondent for Voice of America, who helps me understand how the coronavirus is impacting the work and life of the United Nations. This episode is part of a semi-regular series in which I speak with in-house UN correspondents about the latest buzz and happenings around the UN, uh, but these days that is just entirely dominated by COVID-19. So we kick off discussing the work of the World Health Organization before having a longer conversation about the day-to-day implications of COVID-19 on all manner of work at the UN, including UN peacekeeping, everyday diplomacy, and the work of the Security Council. Margaret Bashir does make one point towards the end of this conversation that I think deserves emphasizing. To the extent that COVID-19 does not wreak havoc on places that are already vulnerable due to humanitarian crises or already have weak health systems, it will be because the UN System for Disaster Response provided a critical buffer. And to that end, I did want to mention a new effort by the World Health Organization that launched the day after I recorded my chat with Margaret Bashir. And that is a new COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund. This is a first-of-its-kind effort to solicit individual and private sector donations to support the WHO's effort to mitigate the impact of COVID-19 on vulnerable populations. This fundraising platform is being managed by two nonprofits, the United Nations Foundation here in the United States and the Swiss Philanthropy Foundation, so contributions to it are generally tax-deductible. You can make a contribution to this effort and spread the word about it by going to covid19responsefund.org, and please do spread the word. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global or click on the ad to learn more on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Margaret Bashir. UN correspondent for Voice of America, who is speaking in her own capacity. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. 
Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I was watching you in today's noon briefing on the live stream. I noticed that you're in a row by yourself with no one around. Um, is that sort of de rigueur at the UN right now? That just could be because nobody likes me. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly, hardly. No, I think we're less people. It's a bit of a ghost town around here, to tell you the truth. It's, uh, I can definitely feel not just staff are not here, but a lot of the uh, international journalists are not here uh, as well. But that may be because they're out covering COVID sort of in the field. So, you know, we are now in, you know, several weeks into the COVID crisis, speaking the same week that the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic. Um, since like January, when this crisis first emerged, how have you noticed how the United Nations has responded or, or evolved to this situation? Well, I think really the World Health Organization has been actively actively on top of this from day one, and they've been very vocal about it from day one, and they have engaged with uh, the Chinese government uh, from the beginning, and they were out there in China from the beginning. So uh, I think, you know, that's the arm of the UN that needs to be dealing with this, and they've been doing a really good job of it. I've, I've been impressed, really, watching Dr. Tedros and uh, some of his colleagues and their daily briefings that they've been doing. I mean, I think they're really trying to keep uh, people informed. And, uh, you know, it was on uh, Wednesday when they declared it a pandemic. I, you know, the markets reacted. It was a shock. But, you know, let's keep it in perspective. What does pandemic mean? It just means that it's prevalent over a whole country or the globe. In this case, I think uh, I'm not sure how many countries it is now. Maybe you know the number, but it's uh, less than 100. So, I mean, it's not half the world yet. Yeah. And one point that Tedros has been emphasizing in these briefings, which are like almost daily. Now, now it's just kind of cut back to a few times a week. I yeah. mean, the WHO has been doing them daily, and he's certainly been showing up to them um, many times a week. Yeah. I mean, so what one point that he's emphasizing, you know, is that, yes, it's in, you know, 100 X number of countries. But keep in mind, in like 70 of those countries, there's fewer than 100 cases. In 40 of those countries, there's just one case. It's really just a few countries that we're seeing a massive number of cases. And, and right now, as we speak, that's Italy and South Korea and Japan and Iran. Um, you know, who knows, soon to be the United States, we, we, we don't know. Um, but that's sort of one of those points that the WHO, at least, has been emphasizing. Yes, it is a pandemic, but really, it's just a small number of countries that are impacted most severely. Correct. And uh, but the scary part is that once you're impacted severely, you know, hospital systems are overwhelmed. And we're seeing, uh, you know, a developed European country, namely Italy, absolutely uh, crippled by this. And some of the things you read uh, on social media, doctors who've taken to Twitter and things like that, it's really heartbreaking to read what's happening and how they're having to make decisions about who really gets a respirator and who doesn't. And uh, one of the things that I thought was very interesting. I, you know, I keep wondering about this whole respirator issue. And uh, I saw a doctor, Dr. Margaret Harris from WHO speaking about it. And she was saying that the problem is, if, you know, let's say I'm sick, I'm on a respirator. Well, I'm not on that respirator for a few hours or a few days. I'm on it for a few weeks. And then if you get sick, 
you know, I'm hogging it. So now they need one for you. And so when there's limited respirators in many, many sick people, that's where the congestion yeah. happens. And yeah, that's yeah. the problem because people are on it for so many weeks. And I know a key focus of the WHO and presumably of the broader UN system is going to be countries that don't have the kind of capacity that Italy have, countries in sub-Saharan Africa or less developed countries that just don't have these strong enough health systems to deal with like a, a you know, just a small cluster of cases. And, you know, that's a refrain I keep seeing from the WHO is, you know, we need to prepare these countries that are not hard hit yet, but, you know, could have, you know, devastating impact there. Well, I'm sure that's keeping Dr. Tedros and others at the World Health Organization up at night. I mean, this fear that if uh, countries with weak governments and weak health systems Conflict-ridden countries, uh, you know, see a surge in cases or have it come to their country. How are they going to be equipped to deal with it? And the the WHO has said they're ready to help everyone, but you know, I haven't heard a, cr a clear plan on you know, are we going to send fifty respirators to X country or Y yeah, country? Yeah. They, there is like that plan it, um, at the WHO's website. It's like there's something something emergency response plan, and it's actually pretty detailed to that end. Um, they, uh, it's like a $675 million appeal, dollar appeal. And the actual sort of annex and pages of that appeal go into pretty granular detail about like the, um, you know, vehicles they need to rent in order to do contact tracing, the cost of fuel. You know, it, it gets into pretty granular detail about that kind of stuff. I don't know about respirators specifically. Um, but that's like $675 million that they're trying to raise, uh, between now and the end of April is sort of specifically for preparedness in less developed countries. Well, I'm glad to see that they're on it because that's, you know, that's, those are the people who are going to suffer the most. So worried about the refugees. I mean, we have a huge refugee and displaced population in the world right now, tens of millions of people. And if you just think about it, and just northwestern Syria, all these refugees who've been shoved out of Idlib and are push, pushed up against the border with Turkey. And, you know, if someone gets sick. It's going to go through that crowd like wildfire. I mean, they have poor hygiene. They have poor sanitation. They are already sick and vulnerable. So it's, it's, a, it's a scary prospect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll plug an episode I posted a little while ago with uh, about specifically the impact of COVID-19 on refugee and vulnerable populations. I'll post a link to that on the website in case folks haven't listened to it yet. Um, but I want to just kind of ask you about how UN headquarters, I'm speaking with you at UN headquarters, how has UN headquarters and the operations at UN headquarters so far been impacted? So the UN says things are, you know, moving along that uh, after we uh, had Hurricane Sandy uh, about five years ago here in New York, they came up with a very robust business continuity plan uh, because after the hurricane, this building was shut down for several days. Uh, the water came in, we're right on the river, and the water came into the garage and flooded out the garage. And there were, uh, you know, sometimes electrical is in the garage. And a lot of buildings in New York learned you need to move the electrical to the upper floors and not have on the lower floors because a lot of places got flooded. And uh, so this building was shut down for several days. And so they have learned from that. And uh, they are they have a, a three-phase plan. And uh, the spokesperson said that we're currently in phase two. And uh, that's active risk reduction mode. And as part of that, they're trying to, you know, sort of thin the herd here in the building and uh, get people off campus, get as many people working remotely from home as possible so that 
we won't come in contact with each other, you know, lower the odds of, of catching it from one another if somebody had it. And uh, they're also today, uh, today, today being uh, Thursday, they've announced uh, that starting on uh, March 16th, they're going to stop any UN sponsored uh, side meetings here at the building until the end of April. And so that doesn't impact uh, mandated meetings like committee meetings or general assembly meetings, but other sort of side events that crop up around these things. And uh, the UN is stopping the ones that they had planned, and they're going to ask member states to cancel theirs. That's interesting. I mean, th- those like meetings, those quote unquote side events, it's like a term of art in the UN for, you know, thematic meetings on on like on, on various issues that are not, you know, general assembly meetings. So those side events are a lot, a lot like the lifeblood of the UN. I mean, I, I saw the briefing from the spokesperson for the president of the general assembly saying, you know, a meeting on, you know, antimicrobial resistance plans and, and other. Well, uh, that one they should have kept. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but a meeting on like, you know, how the U like how the UN is going to engage youth in its 75th anniversary, you know, renewal talks, you know, things like that. That's those like talks are a lot of, are to me, you know, a lot of the lifeblood of the UN and, and that those are just being canceled. Look, it's it's extenuating circumstances. And I think that they have to, to put public health and safety first. And it doesn't mean that they'll never have them. They're just not having them now. And they can suspend them and, and postpone them and have them later. We already saw that with the Commission on the Status of Women. Uh, you know, everybody was very disappointed about that. But there were. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you explain that? Yeah, Yeah. they were expecting 12,000 women and delegates to come to the United Nations uh, this month of March for about a two-week period from every corner of the world. And so it just, you know, became very obvious that that was not going to be able to go forward. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Commission on the Status of Women, it's like this annual uh, event that happens almost usually in March at at the United Nations to, you know, uh, commemorate and and discuss, you know, the the CSW, the Commission on the Status of Women. It's just a a big meeting. And I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong, like the second kind of biggest gathering outside UNGA that happens at the UN every year. That's right. As far as I understand that it is, though, it's been going on since I believe 1946. And they and they just, you know, cut it to one day, which is a pretty you know big deal for the UN. Yeah, well, they had to do that. They had to do that. So, so far, the meetings you know that have been canceled you know, are these kind of thematic side events. There is this big meeting coming up. I think it's at the end of April, early May, the uh, 2020 NPT, the Nonproliferation Treaty, the Review Conference. This happens every five years, and it's a kind of a big deal kind of conference around nonproliferation and nuclear security issues. And you know, it's meant to revive and uphold and bolster you know the NPT, which is arguably the most important international nonproliferation and nuclear security treaty, you know, ever. Um, It's unclear right now if that's going to happen. Right. It's unclear, but it's not considered a side event. And uh, we will see, you know, what happens and between now and then. I I think really for so many businesses and institutions, colleges, everything we're seeing, uh, you know, you have to see it on a on a week by week basis until we see where this is headed. Has the work of the Security Council been impacted so far? So not so far, but they are uh, making sort of contingency plans. Uh, There was a few days ago a simulation that they did one evening with um, 
permanent missions, the council members, the 15 council members and their permanent missions, to see if they could actually uh, do sort of a uh, video conference security council meeting. And uh, so I heard, you know, they did it. It, 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 They need to work on it. (laughs) It wasn't perfect. Can you hear me? Unmute, unmute. You're talking, but I can't hear you. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. So it's, you know, they're trying to figure out how to do it. But, you know, frankly, we have a lot of uh, sec- uh, um, special representatives and, and different envoys who do video conferences into the main chamber normally anyway. So the the technology exists. It's just fine-tuning it but and expanding it. Because think about it, you have to have 15 people on your conference call and your your video call and, you know, plus perhaps briefers and guests and what have you. So it, it's complicated. And I know they're trying to work it out. Um, but that would work perhaps for public meetings. But then there's the issue of closed door consultations, which are mm. more classified, let's say, in nature, you know, they're private. So how would you do that? And how would you protect those from outside ears, I suppose? And, you know, how would you know who was listening in? So it's something that uh, I think it's a work in progress. And and again, on the Security Council, you know, I remember in the earlier days of the Ebola outbreak, you know, there was a push and it did happen that the Security Council met and approved like a new UN mission on Ebola emergency response. And, you know, the Security Council, you know, played a role in containing the outbreak of Ebola. I don't see right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, much momentum around the idea that the Security Council can play a role in this global health crisis. No, I don't really feel there's an appetite for it at the moment. Uh, when, when China China happens to be the president of the Security Council this month, and when uh, they took over the Security Council on March 1st, uh, the ambassador gave his uh, program of work press conference that uh, following Monday. And he was asked whether there would be a meeting about it. And he said no at the time. And I haven't really heard uh, anybody agitating to have one right now. So I I don't know really what the Security Council could contribute to this effort at this moment. I think it really needs to be a WHO effort. And everyone just needs to support WHO. Yeah, and you know, the politics are, are like a lot different now in terms of, you know, who the leader of the United States is this time around versus last time. So I can see, you know, different sort of worldviews are being expressed. So I, I yeah, I, I could definitely see. And it's also obviously a different, you know, sort of pan, kind of pandemic. Well, um, and I think, you know, it's, yeah. it is. It's a pandemic, right? And Ebola wasn't. And so I think a lot of the members are struggling to deal with it in their own countries, and they're focused internally rather than globally. And so everyone's kind of scrambling to protect themselves. And that's how it's kind of going right now. And I, I did see, though, early on that one sort of direct consequence of the uh, pandemic was a decision by UN peacekeeping to suspend the um, rotation, the regular rotation of troops in and out of certain peacekeeping um, peacekeeping operations, which seems that seems to me at least have been the earliest indication, the most direct um, implication of COVID-19 on some of the peace and security work that the UN's doing. And I think that was a very smart decision because we all know what happened in Haiti with cholera. Uh, the peacekeepers from Nepal, uh, a couple of them brought it there. And it was, uh, you know, as big a catastrophe as the earthquake was in the end. And, uh, you know, they 
couldn't risk peacekeepers from South Korea or Italy or China rotating in, and then they might be sick, you know, after they, you know, they may be asymptomatic when they left their home country, but a couple of weeks after they've arrived, they could uh, be sick and bring it to places where they don't have it and they're ill-equipped to handle it. So I actually think that was a very uh, good proactive preventative um, I don't know. I don't really have like a formed question here. I'm just trying to like tease out any other ideas or, or, or commentary that you might have about, um, you know, what sort of indicators you might be looking towards inside the UN to suggest to you, you know, how this, you know, outbreak might, might impact the work of the UN. Well, I think it's it sort of in a, a way makes the UN all the more relevant uh, because the, the UN has the power to unify everybody over this. And the World Health Organization is really taking a, a big lead on it. And uh, there can be a liaison for countries that don't necessarily get along to share information and to do things. I mean, look, they're going to Iran and helping Iran, you know, so they're, they're going places where some other countries who have issues with them may not go. Or um, So I think it, the UN can be a unifying force in this, uh, you know, global health emergency. And uh, they have a lot of the logistical structures in place to deal with crises. Like, you know, they can just kind of, they, they know how to deal with natural disasters, with earthquakes, with cyclones, with hurricanes and the aftermath. So if they can kind of translate some of that knowledge and some of that readiness to this health emergency, it can be great. I mean, I think it can make, make the UN very relevant right now. Like, how how might that work? Can you tease that out a little bit? Well, look, I mean, they have humanitarian hubs around the world in different countries where they have stockpiles of supplies. It, normally, it's food and, and uh, you know, certain kinds Shelter. of medical equipment and things like that. But a lot of these Shelter. things can be applied in, a, in this sort of an emergency just as they can be applied in a natural disaster. You still need food and water in, in a medical emergency as you do in a hurricane or a earthquake. And I think it's just their expertise, you know, Mark, like it's so specific. They know how to deal with huge numbers of people. Uh, the UN humanitarian division, they're dealing with millions of people around the world. So they really do have this very uh, specific sort of expertise. And they already have partners on the ground in so many countries. Uh, they're working with other NGOs. They have country teams in a lot of countries. So they already have uh, contacts and liaisons within gov governments. So all the framework is there. And so they can move very quickly, whereas others might not be able to. So I, I think really the UN can be very um, great in helping to contain this outbreak. Yeah, I mean, it all goes back to what we kicked off talking about, which is the potential impact of this outbreak on vulnerable populations and refugees and people caught in humanitarian crises and, you know, those in countries with poor health systems. I mean, it, it seems that like the buffer between disaster and that community might be, you know, the mobilization of, of the UN response mechanisms to, you know, emergencies and, and crises. Well, I think if the UN wants to prove that they're fit for purpose in the 21st century, this might be their moment to do it. But I will say that um, I don't get the sense that this building is going to close down anytime soon. Like, I really don't get the feeling that Antonio Guterres is going to say, everybody work from home tomorrow. I mean, unless they shut down the New York City subways or the city tells them they need to shut down. I really don't feel that this work is going to be grinding to any kind of halt here. And don't forget, here in the Secretariat, it's 
a lot of meetings and things like that. I always say it's like covering the UN in theory here in, at headquarters. But out in the field, operations are continuing. I, we haven't heard of any major disruptions in terms of humanitarian deliveries or other kind of work in the field. I mean, as far as the peacekeeping goes, they may not be rotating new people in, but the ones who are there continue to carry out their mandates. So I, I don't feel that there's been a great interruption to UN work yet. I, I don't get that sense at all. And I feel that uh, Guterres very much wants to continue without one and that, you know, it's full steam ahead, people, all hands on deck. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much, Margaret. This is very helpful. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Margaret and just in a testament to how quickly evolving the situation is. Uh, it does appear the day after that we recorded this episode that the UN was making moves to go into that broader lockdown phase three mode uh, to severely restrict access to UN headquarters. It wasn't uh, confirmed yet. It was 100% sure, but things seem to be moving in that direction. Uh, meanwhile, here at UN Dispatch World Headquarters, you know, things should be all right. This podcast itself is an act of social distancing. I record this thing at home alone uh, in my home studio. So I don't foresee too much disruption, though. Now that they've closed my kids' schools, you might hear some echo of uh, children in the background. We'll see. All right. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Bye.